Mark chapter 7. Now, you may or may not recall, we just went through the Christmas holidays. That may be so far in the past you can't even recall the fact that even happened, but it did happen. Uh, and if your family is like ours, uh, you have some traditions that sort of surge around those holidays. Our older daughter is a stickler for these traditions. If we ever try to vary from what we do every year, she stops us in our tracks and tells us, no, we don't do it that way. We stop and do it the way we're supposed to do it. Uh, so for, for many families, I'm sure, uh, those traditions add to the enjoyment of the holiday. That's why we have them. So what is a tradition? Well, if someone explains to you one of their holiday traditions, what are they actually saying to you? What are they, what are they telling you about? A tradition is nothing more than a, a system of beliefs or ways of doing things that have been handed down from generation to generation to generation. It's the way we think about things. It's the way it includes expectations about things, how things are supposed to go, things are supposed to continue as they always were with these traditions we have. That is our daughter's expectation for Christmas time. It's the same way every year because that's how we do it. Uh, there are sports teams like the Boston Celtics and the New York Yankees who have great uh, tradition behind their names. Uh, the Cleveland Browns are developing a tradition of giving uh, giant contracts to uh, players of re- a questionable reputation. That is their new tradition, I guess. Uh, the Jewish people have a number of traditions uh, that have been passed down also from generation to generation that applies to weddings and to funerals and to religious ceremonies all across the board. And in many cases, especially when we speak about nationalities or cultures, our tradition sort of holds people together. It's the kind of what gives them their identity and creates the unity among that group of people. If I ask you to change one of your Christmas traditions, right, my guess is in most cases you would uh, resist doing that because it kind of holds everything together for you. Uh, there's nothing wrong with tradition, tradition, at least on the surface. It seems harmless and maybe even beneficial in some ways. And then along comes Jesus Christ and throws a monkey wrench into all that because he get, begins to preach against that very thing. Look at Mark chapter 7 this morning. Begin, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except, except they washed their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there they uh, Many other things there be which they have received to hold as a washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk now thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied unto you, hypocrites, as it is written, These people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, the commandment of God, he hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall uh, say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time we have this morning to open your word. And I pray, Lord, even now you might take your word and bury it into our hearts. Help us to see, Lord, what's here this morning. And if it touches our heart, Lord, it convicts us in some way. May we respond to that, Father, and do the work that we need to do. I pray you would bless all that's said here and done. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what was wrong with tradition? Well, the problem with tradition is if we do something long enough, 
we begin to believe that is the only way to do it, that that is the right way to do it, and there's no other way to do it except that way. A tradition begins to have significance, uh, give significance rather to something, simply because it's done, been done a long time or because we've always done it that way, but it's not because it's necessarily the right way to do it. It's just we've always done it that way. Uh, there are sp- with, with a sports team or a Christmas holiday, it's not a big deal. When it comes to spiritual things, it's a whole different story. It can mean the difference between heaven and hell. And that's why the Lord is so emphatic here in this passage. What he's saying to these people is they have placed all the significance in these things that have meaning only because they've done that for a long time or always done them that way. And now the real truth has come along and they have rejected real truth because it doesn't match up with their tradition. The real dangerous tradition, look at verse 13 again, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. There's the problem. They are willing to reject the word of God so they can maintain their tradition. They've taken Moses' law and added to it and changed it to suit what they were doing. And pretty soon what Moses received on Mount Sinai wasn't nearly as important as the tradition that they had established. Look at the bottom line here in verse 9. He says in verse 9, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. He says you're willing to reject what God says because the tradition is more important to you. And he also says, because you are following tradition, you're in rebellion. You're rebelling against God. And these Pharisees knew the Old Testament law very, very well. And they knew what the Lord said about rebellion. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 23, uh, God said, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. You might as well be a witch if you're going to rebel against God. What the Lord is demonstrating to them here is that the whole reason that he came in the first place was to deal with that rebellion. And they're demonstrating that very thing to him as he speaks to them. Mankind's heart is in rebellion against God. That's the way it's always been. Mankind rebels against God from the very time Satan fell to the very time Adam fell. Mankind has always been in rebellion against God. And they always choose their way over God's way. And the only thing that changes that is when a person's heart is changed. As long as that heart stays the same, they're going to continue to rebel. And they will never have their sins forgiven. And they will never have fellowship with God. It takes a heart change. I want to read to you what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Go there. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 18. I don't want to read this to you. I want you to see it this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. A definitive words about tradition here from, from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. Peter says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter heard Jesus Christ speak, and he got a hold of it. He points out here the primary danger of tradition is that it can send a man or a woman to hell. That's the concern. Peter says you weren't redeemed by tradition. You were redeemed by the blood of Christ. Tradition fought against your salvation. It fought against what God was telling you. Salvation comes in direct opposition to your tradition, and your tradition just gets in the way of God's salvation. That's what he's telling them. There are people all across the world today who are believing that their tradition is going to get them to heaven. You'll meet them every day. There is some system of belief that has been passed down to them from generation to generation, and they have accepted it as fact, even though there's no Bible behind it. Uh, It doesn't make any difference. They believe that somehow that system of tradition alone is going to get them to heaven. And you'll meet them, like I say, every day. I'm thankful I was saved when I was young. I was raised in a Christian home, and the gospel was always the only way of salvation uh, that that I knew of because that was what was taught. That's what the Word of God said. 
No tradition in my family as I grew up took the place of God's word. And so I didn't get mixed up in a lot of tradition. But I know there are many, many people in our world today who are not as blessed. Some of you sitting here this morning or you're listening here today by Facebook or live or YouTube, you weren't raised in a Christian home. And therefore, you had to fight through a lot of tradition before you could come to Jesus Christ. Thank God one day you figured it out. Thank God one day the Holy Spirit got a hold of you and you realized it wasn't the teaching of the church or the belief of mom or dad or grandma or grandpa that was going to get you to heaven. You realized it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that was going to get you to heaven. But there are many out there today, and you'll meet them. You'll, as you witness, you'll talk to them. They're not saved because they can't get past their tradition. When you tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, they'll say to you, well, here's what my church teaches. Here's what my priest or my pastor says. That'll be their refute to what the word of God says. And they'll go by their tradition, and they'll live by their tradition, and they'll die by their tradition, and they'll go to hell by their tradition. That's the danger. It is a true danger. Remember years ago watching a TV debate between Bob Jones III and a man who at the time was a senator in Georgia. And the interviewer asked Bob Jones how a person gets to heaven. And from the Bible, Bob Jones gave the plan of salvation step by step as clearly as it possibly could be given. And then he turned it over to the senator and asked the senator senator to respond to what Bob Jones has said. Here's what the senator said. He said, well, according to what this fellow just said, a person can live a good life all their lives and die and go to hell. And yet people can live in sin all their lives and trust Jesus Christ at the end of it and go to heaven. And then he said, that system doesn't seem fair. That's what the senator said. You know what his problem was? He was caught in tradition. He was caught in tradition. He thought that uh, he had been given the system of belief that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's what he was taught. Uh, That isn't Bible, folks. That's tradition. And you've got scores and scores of people out there who believe that, and they can't find one verse of Scripture to prove it. They just know it because somebody told them that, and they hold on to it. That's tradition. And people living according to tradition, when it comes to salvation, will wind up in hell as a result. Tradition probably sends more people to hell than anything else. They get caught up in a church or some system of belief, and it creates people who think they're doing the right thing when they're actually doing the wrong thing. They think they're believing the right thing, and they're not believing the right thing. That's why Peter is very clear in teaching uh, what the real way to heaven is, the verses I just read to you. Well, you say to yourself, I'm not an Old Testament Jew. I'm already saved. Tradition has had no part in my life, no negative effects whatsoever, because I've got it all taken care of. Well, that may be true. But we also need to see this morning that tradition can not only damn a soul, it can also ruin a Christian's life. There are ways of doing things and ways of thinking as a Christian that are grounded not in Scripture, but in tradition. One of the words I've heard almost all my life being in church, we've always done it this way, or we've never done it that way before, or this is what I was taught, or this is what makes sense to me, and on and on it goes. I remember years ago talking to somebody who sang in the choir of a Baptist church, and I talked to them about their salvation, and they claimed their baptism was going to help them get to heaven. They were in church all their lives, I know. They served in the church. But somebody told them baptism was a part of their salvation, and they got a hold of that thing and couldn't let it go. That was tradition that got stuck. They were Christians. They were believers. We're stuck in tradition. So we may not be Old Testament Jews, but it can still be a problem for us as well. Uh, To go to the book of Colossians, if you would. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Things may sound right. Things may make sense. But things may not be biblical. And that's the difference. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 8. Paul gives a very clear warning here, something we we need to hear because he's talking to the church, not to unbelievers. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this, Beware, watch out, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Talking to believers, he says, look out, the tradition might uh, cause you to not go after Jesus Christ. A Christian can be spoiled through tradition. Paul says, be careful not to get caught up in things that are not biblical, no matter how right they sound, and no matter who says them, or no matter how long they've been done, or who's passed them down. Always be sure the things that you believe are Bible-centered, not based in what some person or what some church has said. Now, what I want to do this morning, if you have an outline, you'll see it on there this morning. I want to give you three traditions that Christians often follow. And these are just the ones that are probably the, most, the primary ones, as many others we could look at. I want to look at these three traditions. And as a result of believers following these three traditions, Christians can lo- ruin their spiritual lives. Now, for most of us here this morning, this is nothing more for you than a reminder. But if you see yourself here this morning, one of these traditions we're going to talk about, uh, then you're following tradition and not Scripture. And again, Paul's warning is, beware, because if you're following these things, you're going to be spoiled. It's going to ruin your Christian walk and ruin your Christian testimony. Here's the first one. The first tradition says, I can live a good Christian life and never study the Word of God. I can live a good Christian life and never study the Word of God. Folks, that is not a biblical statement. Whoever believes that is following something other than the Word of God, that's something that's been passed down to them because the Bible never said that. But I have met Christian after Christian caught up in that tradition. I've met a number of Christians, hard to believe, who never study that book, never look at it. And yet they profess to be born again. Now, I want to be clear before we go any farther. I'm not talking about simply reading the Word of God. I'm talking about studying the Word of God. I'm talking about going deeper into the Word of God, about learning doctrine that is foundational to what we believe and to what the Word of God says. And with that understanding, let me make this statement to you. And this statement, I believe with all my heart. We will never be effective Christians without a consistent plan of not just reading, but studying the Word of God. You will never be effective as a believer without having a consistent plan to study the Word of God. And nothing else takes the place of that. Nothing more important in your Christian life than that. There is no way around it, and there's no use arguing with it. It is simply a fact. If I want to be a mature believer in Jesus Christ, I must not just uh, read the Word of God. I must study the Word of God. In order to be mature, I've got to be able to apply God's Word to my life. I can't apply it unless I know it. I'll never know it unless I study it. If I never study it, I'll never know it. If I don't know it, I won't grow. If I never grow, I can never be used by God. That book is a starting point for everything else we do in our Christian walk. Anything else that we do that is contrary to that is the tradition of man and not coming from God, not from God's word. Listen to what David says here in Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Inquire in his temple. That last part, David says, here is my desire. I want to inquire in the temple of God. That's the word of God. That's the word of God. It was David's desire to inquire there because he knew that without hearing from God, he had no direction and no purpose to his life whatsoever. Now, I know we'd like God to do what many of the charismatics say he does. We would like God to walk into our bedroom someday and sit down on the edge of the bed and just chat with us and talk to us. I know we'd love to have that. That's not how he operates. 
If that's happening, it's bad pizza or something else, but it's not God because that's not how it works. (laughs) God doesn't do that. What God does do is give you a book, a reliable, perfect book that is preserved for you. That's what he gives you, and he gives you guidance through that book. He speaks to you through that book. How long has it been since you've heard from God? Not by reading the Word of God, but by studying the Word of God. How long has it been since you've got into that book and dug and dug and dug until God showed you something you never knew before? That's studying the Word of God, and God wants to do that. But we will never have that happen. We'll never hear from Him in that way unless we spend significant time in the study of the Word of God. I will tell you, folks, a verse here and a verse there, reading it on Sunday morning, pulling it out only when there's some trouble in our lives, that is not enough. We need regular, consistent, daily study in the Word of God. Nothing else will work, and tradition will say otherwise to you. It will say you don't need it. But don't believe the tradition at all. The Bible tells us clearly to know God, you've got to study the Word of God. That's tradition number one. Here's number two. If I go to church and involve myself in activities, that makes me a good Christian. <laughs> if I go to church and involve myself in activities, that makes me a good Christian. There is this belief grounded in tradition that says that activity equals spirituality. You ask somebody, you know, Jesus Christ as Savior, and they'll say, I'm a deacon in the church, or I serve in the church, or I do this or that in the church, as though that proves their spirituality. That's tradition. That's the teaching of a person. That's not God's teaching. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible says we ought to be involved in church, and the Bible also says we ought to involve ourselves in spiritual activity for sure. One of the problems today is that too many Christians are not nearly involved enough in the work of the Lord. That's one of the issues. But contrary to what might might have been taught by a pastor or a church church leader, that's not enough. I want you to turn to the book of of Isaiah, if you would. Turn to the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 1. I believe these are some eye-opening words from God as he tells this to Israel, but I believe spiritually we can apply these words to ourselves as well. Go to Isaiah chapter 1, and when you get to look at verse 10, Isaiah chapter 1 beginning in verse 10. Now, watch what he says here. Some fascinating words contrary to any tradition we might have picked up. God says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies, I cannot with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. Now look at that. Everything he lists there are things those people were supposed to be doing. They were all part of the law. That was the law that he was outlining there. All the burnt offerings and so forth and so on. That was all part of the law. And God says, don't do it anymore. It's making me sick. I'm full of it. God says you're doing all these things. You're involved in all this spiritual activity, but it's not pleasing me whatsoever. It's making me sick. Why is that? It was because these folks were focused on the external instead of on the internal. They were doing all this stuff, but their heart was not right. And the familiar theme is in all through the Word of God. But here's what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying, I am not concerned about your activity. I'm concerned about your heart. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. 
That's what I want. Everything else is secondary to what is going on with your heart. Look at Mark chapter 7. Go back there if you would and look at verse 8. Jesus Christ says, for, the laying aside, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. Now, again, washing pots and cups is not the wrong thing to do. That's not the issue. He's not, he, God is not focusing on what they're doing. He's focused why on why they're doing what they do. Folks, it is a principle of the word of God that if we can ever get a hold of it, it's going to change how we operate. God, in God's eyes, it is not about quantity, it is about quality. God is not concerned about a lot of activity. He is concerned about your motive. Why do you do what you do? I've asked you this question many, many times as we've been together. I'm going to ask it to you again because the answer is so crucial to our, our Christian walk. We've got to be reminded every so often. Why do you do what you do in service to the Lord? Why do you do it? What's your motive behind it? Why do you do it? Uh, do you do it to please Jesus Christ? Do you do it because you love him? Do you do it to bring glory to him? Or is there some other reason for doing it? Do you do it to please other people? Do you do it because you've been told that's what you're supposed to do? Do you do it because you're afraid people will talk about you or criticize you if you're not involved in something? Do you do it because you want to look spiritual and therefore those activities make you look spiritual? Why do you do what you do? Unless we do what we do solely out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the purpose of bringing other people to him, it's not worth anything. And that's what God says in Isaiah. Do all that you want to. I'm sick of it. It means nothing because you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. It's an external focus, not an internal focus. I routinely ask myself why I do what I do at this church. All kinds of reasons to do this. And as is true with every activity that we involve ourselves in, pride can get in the way if we're not careful. And pretty soon we're doing things for our own glory uh, to be seen by others and not for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I believe this. Very, very soon we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. As soon as Jesus Christ comes back, that's what happens next. While they're going through their tribulation down here, you're going to have your own tribulation going on up there as you stand face to face, eyeball to eyeball with Jesus Christ. And when that happens, we're not going to be judged on how much we did, on the quantity of our activity. I know they got this thing, you know, for the salvation thing, where God's got this giant scale, puts all the good works here, all the bad works here, and see what balances out. Well, just believers sometimes believe the same thing. If I can just pile enough on that scale to tip it, God's going to like what I did and reward me as a result. Not the case at all. Not the case at all. God's system is very fair. You may not have the same opportunity as everybody else does. You'll never be a Billy Graham, nor will I. So you won't get all those opportunities. But you see, if Billy Graham did all those things for the wrong reason, and you do what you do for the right reason, you'll outweigh him at the judgment seat. Now, I'm not saying we want to do that. I'm just saying that's how God balances things out. You may have fewer opportunities, but why you do what you do is the defining point. And that solves everything else. In the day of the the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to consider all of our activity, and I put that in quotes. And if our motive is wrong, he'll say, I don't want to see all this. All this is making me sick. (laughs) Not the kind of work I'm impressed with. I want to see work that was done with a clean heart, with a heart that served me out of a love, not out of duty, but out of a love for Jesus Christ. Not because of my pride, but because of my service to him. And there are people at the judgment seat of Christ. I hope I'm not one of them. There's people at the judgment seat of Christ who will see all the work burnt to a crisp. 
everything they did, a lifetime of work burnt to a crisp. Why? Because they were following tradition and not following what really mattered. Because the activity does not matter. Uh, The problem is activity becomes a focus and motive never enters our minds. And as a result, the work is gone and the rewards are lost and we get nothing at the judgment seat. Why do you do what you do? Why are you here this morning? Why do you come on Sundays? Why do you come on Thursdays? Why do you do that? What involves you in this church? Why do you work in the Sunday school? Why do you work in the outreach? Why do you work at Marketplace? Why do you work at the Good News Club? Why do you do that? If it is not out of a love for your Savior, then you might as well stay home. If you're not here this morning because you love Jesus Christ, you might as well get in the car and go back to where you came from. (laughs) And I want you to stay. (laughs) But I'm saying that's the truth. That's the truth. If you're here only because you want to be seen or because you're doing what the right thing to do is, uh, that work is going to go up in flames someday. If I'm trying to impress somebody, if I'm doing it out of guilt, it's the wrong motive, and that motive won't last. So the second tradition, activity equals spirituality. That is simply not according to the word of God. Look at verse 6. Here's the problem with tradition. He answered and said unto them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honoreth me with their lips, there's the activity, but their heart is far from me, there's the motive. Tradition causes people to be involved in things, to be involved in activity, but the heart is wrong, and therefore the motive disqualifies the activity. David said this, I think this is one of the bravest things anybody could ever say, and I mean that. Here's what David said, listen to this, Psalm 26.2. David said, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. That's a brave man. He says, Lord, I want you to come and examine me and check out my motive and check out why I'm doing what I'm doing and see if it's genuine, see if it's real. David said, if it's not real, I want to know because I want to follow you. I don't want to follow tradition. If I want to be right before God, that has got to be my prayer. I must pray Psalm 26, verse 2. I must say, Lord, I want you to examine me. I want to make sure I'm always following your word. I want to make sure I'm always doing this because I love you and not just because somebody told me to do it. or I'm trying to impress somebody in the process. All right, here's tradition number three. I can be saved. I can know the Lord, but I can keep hold of my own life and be in God's will. That's tradition. In other words, I can trust Jesus Christ as Savior but I can stay in control of my own life and I can make my own plans. That tradition, that belief is probably destroying the effectiveness of more Christians than anything else that we could mention. Christians hold to the belief that they can get saved and still live their own lives. They can get saved, but make their own plans and fit God's will around their own desires and God will understand and God won't mind. God does mind. God does mind. And God won't bless a life under those conditions. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, I know that verse well. I want you to see it this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is reminders for us today. I want you to see the last words of that verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 19. It says what? Ye are bought with a price. You were purchased the day you got saved. What purchased you? The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ purchased you. The precious blood of God purchased you that day. Now, you know what that means? That means when something is bought, it becomes a property of the one who bought it. When I got saved, Jesus Christ bought me. 
He paid for me with, from that which was the most precious thing on earth, his own blood. And the bottom line is this. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to him. And therefore, I can't make my own plans. I can't do whatever it is that I want to do. I must abide by his wishes now because he owns me. <laughs> he owns me. Let's say this. Let's say you bought a car from me. I wouldn't sell the Lexus. Of course, I don't have the Lexus. But when I had the Lexus, I wouldn't sell it to you. However, beside the point. You buy a car from me, and you take that car home, and you put it in your driveway. The next morning, you come out of your house, and you see me getting into your car. And you say, what are you doing? And I say, well, I'm driving the car to work. And I say, you know, even though I, you bought the car from me, I didn't think you meant that I couldn't use it anymore. <laughs> I didn't know I had to stop using this car because you bought it. I, I sold it to you figuring I could, it's still mine to use whenever I want to use it. Well, obviously, you'd have to clear up that little mis misconception. <laughs> It's your car now. I don't own it anymore. I can't drive it anytime I want to now because it doesn't belong to me anymore. Now, we laugh at that as, as a silly illustration. There are believers doing that every day, every day. You see, many Christians live their lives believing that Jesus Christ bought them, but they can still drive the car if they want to. They bought the car. They bought, he bought the car, but they still want to get into that car and they could go where they wanted to go and do with it whatever they want to do with it. And it doesn't matter to God if they do. It does matter. It doesn't work that way. God's word is clear. He will never bless a life that is not totally surrendered and given over to him completely lock, stock and barrel, as they say. It's got to be his and his alone. He doesn't uh, share with anybody. Uh, back in 1976, an Air Force general by the name of Robert Scott wrote a book, and he called that book, it was all about his combat flights, and he called that book, God is My Co-Pilot. Now, I understand the title, but I don't care what we're talking about, folks. That's not true. That's not true. God is the pilot. God is the co-pilot. God is the navigator. God is the mechanic. God is the flight attendant. He's all of it. <laughs> He's all of it. He has the controls, and we are squashed back there in coach somewhere, just along for the ride. <laughs> Now, we can resist that if we want to. Uh, Jonah did. Uh, Demas did. Ananias and Sapphira did. Even Peter did. And not one of those folks was successful in what they did. They tried to fight God and lost, uh, trying to gain control over their own lives. The only ones who survived, who did anything for the Lord, were those who, in the end, gave control back to God after he purchased them. And the unchangeable law is this, folks. We will never be used by God until we take our hands off of every part of our lives and relinquish total control to Jesus Christ. I'll give you the familiar verse, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And then he adds this little postscript, which is your reasonable service. <laughs> he says, give it all to God, and that's reasonable. Why? Because he gave all for us. And he says, when you get saved, the only way to be used by God is to make yourself a living sacrifice. The only way to make yourself usable to God is go to that altar and put yourself on it and strap yourself to it. And say, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. That's the only way to be used. Place yourself on the altar and take your hands off. No strings attached. No conditions. No stipulations. We place our lives completely under, in God's hands to do whatever it is he wants to do with them. We can give what he wants what he, can, he can give what he wants to give. He can take what he wants to take. No matter what he does, our lives are in his hands to do with whatever he wants to do with them. And it is us consistently, day by day, surrendering our will to the will of the Father. Now, folks, let me tell you something. You better do that every day. 
Don't think you can cover that for a week or a month. Say, Lord, my life is yours for the next month. Don't do it that way because you're going to take it back before the day's over. <laughs> Every day say, Lord, this is yours. It's yours. Do whatever you want to with it. Bring whatever you want to bring. Give whatever you want to give. Take whatever you want to take. It's all yours. Do it every day. Every day. Every day. With no strings and no no conditions. Our lives are in his hands. Tradition says it's my life. I should keep control. The Bible says it's God's life. You have no right to it whatsoever. It's his. One of the things that Mark 7 does, it gives us the distinguishing characteristic of a Pharisee. A Pharisee is somebody who places something else above what the Word of God says. In this case, it was tradition. And sadly, there are many in churches today, uh, we have, uh, rather, in many churches today, we have a number of modern-day Pharisees. They have decided what's right. They've placed what they think above what the Word of God or the Servant of God says. We've had Pharisees in this church. We may have Pharisees in this church now, at least in terms of their thoughts and their attitudes. Most churches have a Pharisee or two in them. We all have the capability of that, by the way. <laughs> Whenever what I think takes a place of what God says, I'm a Pharisee. Whenever I take my thoughts and put them over God's thoughts, I'm a Pharisee at that point. That's what the Pharisees did. You can see it all through there. That's exactly what they did. If I can see God's work being done and still be critical and negative because it doesn't match what I think, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee. In spite of seeing God's hand, I decide that I know better. I replace God's word with my own ideas or with some tradition passed down to me by someone else. At that moment, I am a Pharisee. And what we've seen this morning are three ways to allow tradition to get in the way of our lives and place God's truth under the tradition. There are many others I could give you. I didn't give them to you all this morning. Now, if you see yourself in any one of those, or if there's another tradition you're holding on to this morning that is replacing the truth of God in your life, you're acting as a Pharisee, and all I can tell you is get yourself right with God. Get yourself right. That's the only way to manage that. And if we see the attitude of a Pharisee in someone else here in this congregation, you need to pray for them. We need to live Jesus Christ before them so they can see how a, a Christian ought to live. And if God uh, leads us to do it, and only if God leads us to, we may need to confront them. And this may sound very unpastoral, but I will say this to you. If we do everything we can with that Pharisee to try to get them back on track and they won't change, we need to pray them out of this body. We don't need Pharisees in the body, folks. I believe this. and I feel bad when people leave the church, and I'm not saying this is true in every case. Some people have legitimate reasons to leave church, so don't, don't take this wrong. But I also know this. I also know sometimes God takes people out of a church because they're not good for it. And he says, you know what, we'll just have a smaller body and do more with it. (laughs) Then have a large body and have a whole lot of distractions. So sometimes when people leave a church, again, not always, but sometimes when people leave a church, it's a good thing. God takes care of his body. He does that. A God cannot bless a Pharisee. God cannot bless a church that accommodates Pharisees. Pharisees can contaminate a congregation. You can watch it like wildfires go through a congregation. God can't bless a church the way he wants to bless it as long as a Pharisee continues to be a part of it and actively involved in it. So a Pharisee must get their heart right or they need to leave, one of the two. So here's the question, not calling any of you Pharisees this morning. Please don't hear it that way. What I want to ask you is this, as I've asked myself this week, what are you holding on to this morning? What are you gripping on to this morning? What is most important to you in your relationship to Jesus Christ? Is there some tradition that you're holding on to that is not biblical 
can't find Scripture for it, but you're holding on to it because you've always thought that way or because somebody told you you ought to. Are you holding to tradition or are you staying faithful to the Word of God? I will say to you this morning, folks, as painful as this is going to be, (laughs) if it is tradition, you need to let go of it. Cut it loose. Get the scalpel out and slice it (laughs) and get it out of your life. Take care of it. Because only then can God's blessing be upon our lives, upon the lives of those around us, and upon the ministry of this church. We need to build this church not on tradition. Build this church upon the foundation of the Word of God. And God will bless it as a result.